You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome in. I'm Josh Pate. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast. You know, last week I wasted about two minutes of your time just talking, but you know what we're doing here. We are doing an extra podcast only. This is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. I'm aggregating all the best questions you send me every week through the YouTube live section, YouTube comments, email, Twitter, however you've gotten in touch with me. We put together as many questions as we can, and I'm going to shoot through as many as I can in about 30 minutes here. So let's get right to it. Zach, email starts us off. He says, I was wondering what makes a college a national brand. Is it winning a national championship? Do you have to have a number one overall draft pick? What exactly makes you a national brand? I'm an LSU fan in Louisiana. Everything LSU is big. I don't know how big LSU is in the rest of the country. Zach, that's a really good question. So we know Alabama's a national brand. You know, I, even in their down years right now, USC, when they're good, they're a national brand. And to be honest, when they're bad, everybody still cares nationwide. Notre Dame, Ohio State, they're all in that classification. LSU and Georgia are two examples of programs that I would say could be in the process of transitioning from a regional brand to a national brand. Now, you asked what makes it. Nothing overnight. I think the only exception there is, remember when Tim Tebow was at Florida? Florida was temporarily a national brand. You had a superstar head coach in Urban Meyer. That helps. You had a superstar player in Tim Tebow. That helps. Uh, Even Texas A&M when Johnny Menzel was there. If you just get this superstar presence of a player or coach in some cases, that could temporarily do it. But long term, you got to win. You got to have a sustained track record of winning. And that's how you become sort of a blue blood program. But a national program, you know, I would argue, for example, when Chip Kelly was at Oregon, I think Oregon became a national program there. And I think Georgia and LSU could be in the process of transitioning there. It'd be done the old fashioned way at either place. I think it'd be done the old fashioned way, consistently recruited a high level, consistently send guys to the NFL draft. I don't think it's one number one overall draft pick. I think it's consistently sending guys on a conveyor belt to the NFL draft and winning. I mean, that's really what it's about is winning and having a national alumni base doesn't hurt either. And if I go to San Diego, California, I guarantee you I can find folks that graduated from LSU or Georgia. It's just how long do you sustain it? Good question, though, to start us off there. Gage, in the YouTube live chat, why do the same teams consistently win in recruiting? Gage, it's a good question, and it's an easy answer. It's because college is the inverse of the NFL. In the NFL, you get punished for success via lower draft pick, harder schedule the next year, et cetera. In college, you control your own schedule, but you also get rewarded. The more you win, the more attractive your program is, and therefore, the more people want to come play for you if you're any good at recruiting and selling your message. The only thing to think about here is, well, what happens when someone wins and then they start taking off and then all of a sudden they detach themselves from the sport? Well, we see that happening right now. We see Alabama and Nick Saban did it for a while. Clemson is in that group. Uh, LSU could, could become a member of that group. We'll see. Time will tell there. Ohio State certainly is the poster child of this right now in the Big Ten. Uh, Oklahoma has even done this in the Big 12. And you keep waiting for someone to do it in the Pac-12. Once upon a time, USC did it. But do you notice how, you know, remember the early 2000s? It felt like USC 
was on a rocket ship and there was no one that could ever catch him. And then all of a sudden, what I call the consequences of success kicked in. Everyone thinks when this program starts winning and they win a couple of championships and everybody wants to play for them and they sign top recruiting classes by a mile, they're unstoppable. They're not unstoppable. No program's ever unstoppable. What will happen is they will have different obstacles in front of them than eight and four Oregon State will. The consequences of success. If you missed my interview I did as part of our social distance series with Urban Meyer, I highly suggest you guys go to the YouTube channel, 24-7 Sports YouTube. Subscribe while you're there, but watch that interview because I asked him. That's a guy who's been to the mountaintop at a couple of different places. The consequences of success, the stuff you have to deal with only when you're on top, only when you're trying to sustain success that you never thought would be a problem when you were climbing the mountain. The same teams win consistently because there are a small handful that are fully invested and fully committed. Now, there is a bigger handful that think they're fully invested and fully committed, but they're really not. That doesn't mean they don't have people in their organization that are fully committed. It means there isn't a critical mass in the organization. I'm not just talking about coaches or players, talking about administrators, talking about boosters, talking about all sorts of folks who have to be on the same train, moving the same direction. Chris, email. I'd like to ask you to rub your crystal ball again and tell me where the sport's going to be 10 years from now in terms of offensive and defensive schemes. And more specifically, is there any way defense ever catches back up to offense in the modern game? Chris, I don't know that we're ever going back to maybe the style of football we saw in the 70s, 80s, uh, in some places extending into the 90s and early 2000s. What I do think is you've already seen a transition with major programs who can recruit the best talent and they can get whoever they want to. Therefore, they can select the type of athlete that they want to recruit. They're not hamstrung by who's available that given year. And they've started to change the personnel they recruit defensively. Alabama started doing this in the early 20 teens. You know, they went from having guys like Rolando McLean, Dante Hightower, 6'4", 260 pound linebackers to a few years later, you look up and it's Rashawn Evans, it's Dylan Moses, 6'2", 225, 230, playing that same inside backer position for the same man, Nick Saban. So they've already sort of made adjustments and other programs have done this. Brent Venables and Clemson have been great at this. All it's about really is getting faster. What we're talking about is matching speed. If you'll remember when Malzahn got to Auburn, for a, for a time, he made people look silly in the SEC. Chip Kelly did this at Oregon. Already mentioned him twice in the uh, short tenure of this podcast so far. Well, what happened was they weren't necessarily confusing everyone. I remember talking to a coordinator back when Malzahn first got to Auburn. And to the untrained eye, it may have looked like, oh, man, he's, he's got everyone confused. It wasn't that everyone was confused. It was that they were playing basketball on grass. It was like a pinball machine, and you didn't have the speed defensively because everyone for a generation or more had recruited to defensively to stop the power, to stop the power run game. And all of a sudden, you've got a guy come down here and try and make you defend five athletes, six athletes, because they count the quarterback as an athlete in their system, 53 and a third yards across instead of just playing in a phone booth. And it was tough, but eventually, defensive personnel matched what – teams were doing offensively. I just think that when we're talking about the future, I think 27 to 21 is viewed as a pretty good defensive contest, a good, strong defensive contest from this point forward. Jimmy on YouTube, once Nick Saban officially retires, who's the most likely to be his replacement? I gave you two names. I've given you two names for about a year and a half now. Neither is Dabo Swinney. 
Dabo's an obvious guy to keep an eye on, but I felt for a while that Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee and Mario Cristobal at Oregon are two guys that certainly you wouldn't take him right now if he retired, but Nick Saban's not retiring right now. But let's say five years down the road, Nick Saban retires. You're telling me if Mario Cristobal has two or three Pac-12 championships under his belt and a couple of college football playoff appearances, and he's recruited way better than anyone else, and he's played the style of football that you want to play in the SEC way out in Oregon with far less access to talent in his backyard. You're telling me if he accomplishes that, he wouldn't be an attractive option for Alabama. You're telling me if Jeremy Pruitt, who is an Alabama guy, goes to Tennessee and turns that program around and sort of, if not dethrones Georgia, at least levels the playing field in the SEC East, you don't think he'd be attractive? I absolutely think that both are going to be in play. Davis, in the email inbox, and the email address, by the way, is joshpate706 at gmail.com. Speaking of Tennessee, with this recent recruiting hype for Tennessee, do you think it might be premature in saying they're going to contend for the SEC? If Tennessee comes out against Oklahoma and gets demolished, do you think everyone thinks differently of Tennessee? Some people may, Davis. I wouldn't. Um, I just, a lot of things that Tennessee is finally doing right now, I wouldn't expect to necessarily pay dividends on the field this fall. I mean, let's be real. What are we talking about here? We're talking about hype. Where's the hype with Tennessee? It's not from beating Indiana in a bowl game. It's from the recruiting class that they're in the process of putting together. Keep in mind, these kids won't even sign until December or February. They won't be on campus this year. So if you're hyped up about Tennessee because of Dylan Brooks committing from Roanoke, Alabama, and Tennessee gets drugged by Oklahoma, are you less excited about Dylan Brooks? What sense would that make? But I do get where you're going. And I do think, yeah, there's a chance that if you got a bunch of off-season hype that's mainly tied to recruiting, but the on-field example in the fall doesn't give you a lot of hope, I think the concern would be, ooh, I'm not the only one watching this. Recruits are watching this too. Our commits are watching this. And our rivals are in their ear telling them, you see that program you just committed to? You see how we just drug them all over the field? You may go there and change it, or you may go there and suffer the same as everyone else has. Why don't you come here where we're a proven winner? That, I think, would be the main concern. Next up, uh, from the YouTube chat, CFB Media asks, you've given your take multiple times on the comparison between Kirby Smart and Mark Rick while at Georgia. And by the way, if you have missed that, I don't think there should be a comparison. And my reasoning has been Kirby Smart, to his credit, has gotten a lot of doors unlocked there from a resource standpoint that Mark Richt could never manage to open. Question continues. Is a better comparison Jim Harbaugh at Michigan to Richt at Georgia, given the buyout or given the buy-in from the organization or lack thereof, and having a dominant force take over the conference, i.e. Saban and Meyer at Florida and Ohio State and Alabama? Perhaps most importantly, results were so close but couldn't quite grasp it. And yeah, I think that this is an apt comparison. What Jim Harbaugh did and is doing at Michigan and Mark Rick, think about the seasons. It was, what year was it? The 2015 or 16? Uh, it, may be, it may be 2014. But the game where it's in overtime and Michigan thinks that they get screwed on a call, I don't necessarily know that they were wrong. Um, I'm always, I've always been a big believer. If they would have won that game in Columbus that day, you remember how much Harbaugh had talked and how much he had been the face of his program, and he had marketed his program, and he came in, and he was really brash, and he was going to satellite camp all over the South and take the Southern kids, and he was going to 
overturn the Big Ten, if they would have won that day, I think a lot of that would have been validated and it would have been kicked into overdrive. But he didn't win that day. And afterwards, it felt like a lot of that talk sort of just got neutered. And it was rendered sort of, I don't know if it was useless, but it was sort of hollow. And since then, it's felt different. That's to me as an outsider, it's felt different. And it's the same at Georgia. What if Georgia beat Alabama in 2012? They were five yards away, whatever the case was, one more play, maybe away. I'm pretty sure Georgia were to have beaten Alabama. They'd probably go on to beat Notre Dame. We're Mark Rick's a national champion. And if you win a national championship at Georgia, well, you don't believe me, win one at Georgia and see how differently you're viewed. In the state of Georgia and beyond, they have not won one, folks, since 1980. And they talk about it in Georgia every single day. S. Hobson from the YouTube live chat. How will name, image, and likeness legislation help or hurt college football? I think it'll hurt college football. I think it'll help the player. Uh, it's important to distinguish between the two. And be careful what you're wishing for and what you're asking for here. You'll notice I have not discussed this on my show. And the reason is because I'm a hypocrite on this. I know it's very rare to hear someone say that, but I will readily admit to you, I'm a hypocrite. I am a free market capitalist. I believe wholeheartedly in the free market, and therefore I believe in maximizing your value, the value of your name, your image, your likeness, no different. If someone wants to pay you $10 or $10 million to sign your autograph on a piece of paper, you should be free to do it. However, here's the hypocrisy. I don't want this in college football because I, I like the way college football has been. It feels different than the pro game because it has been different than the pro game. So there's a lot of hypocrisy there, and I know that. And if you were to call me out on it, I'd just say, yep, I sure am. You wouldn't get any argument from me. You would just beat a dead horse as long as you wanted to. But we got to be careful, I think, to others who don't want to call themselves a hypocrite. you got to be careful because everyone wants to be on this this progressive train, no one wants to be behind progress. Everyone wants to be ahead of the curve. So everyone wants the hottest take possible on name, image, and likeness, and players should get this, players should get that. That's okay. That's fine. You're welcome to your opinion as much as I am mine, and I've got a conflict in mind, but you just have to be careful. As soon as you start seeing the ramifications of what you call best for the athlete, what it does to what's best for the sport, I think a lot of people may reconsider their stance on this. Butch on Twitter, as a Michigan fan, is J.J. McCarthy worth the hype? Also, what happened to Michigan? Butch, this is a question that I'm actually going to pass on to next week. I just wanted to acknowledge it here, but I'm going to pass on to next week. I'm due to talk to one of my Michigan guys this weekend, so I want to get a little bit more feel than just giving you a surface-based answer on that one. Jordan on YouTube which conference will eventually overtake the SEC for conference supremacy? Jordan, I don't think any of them will in the near future. I would welcome any opposition to that. I, who's going to do it from a conference standpoint? It's Clemson and who in the ACC? It's Ohio State and who right now in the Big Ten? Oklahoma and who? And even if Texas jumps on board, OU, Texas and who in the Big 12? Oregon and who? Washington and who? USC, if they were to come back to the party you got to have six or seven teams that are pretty darn close to being top 20 caliber, not ranked there because you can't play Texas A&M schedule and, you know, maintain a top 20 status if you lose all those big games, but yet you can be a top 20 caliber program and have five losses with the schedule that they play. So I don't think anyone's close to doing that. And I don't see it in the foreseeable future. 
Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Xavier, through the email inbox, how much do you know about LSU's new tech-infused weight training program? Additionally, do you think other major programs will follow? Xavier, yes, I do think they're already following. I was told last offseason, LSU was doing a lot with something called ocular training. This is one of many different new facets that they've started to implement into what is growing more and more by the day, a sports science program instead of just a strength and conditioning program. I think Alabama is now going to make a vast leap into the 21st century in this arena too, with the new hires that they have there. LSU is just a step or two ahead of them. Ocular training. What are we talking about there? We're talking about, as it was explained to me, the strength of one eye compared to the other eye which side of the field a receiver is strongest on, what explains inexplicable drops. You know, we saw, we saw that with LSU last year, actually. I think it was either Chase or Jefferson dropped a wide-open touchdown in the end zone against Georgia. It didn't matter, but I'm having it explained to me. And the science behind ocular strength and which side you see the ball better on, if you got it nailed down to that fine a science, then you better believe you got strength and conditioning nailed down beyond a fine science. So, man, they have, they've got it cranking down there and they're not stopping now because now you gave someone the result. And by someone, I mean a donor who may have been on the fence with the checkbook. Now everyone's going to flood them. They will not get no for an answer anytime in the near future. Jacob, let's get another LSU question in here while we're at it. How worried should LSU fans be with a lack of spring football and other limitations occurring due to COVID-19 possibly hindering the players getting reps with one another? With the large turnover from last year, should it be a major concern or is there enough individual talent there that they'll be able to overcome it? Jacob, this is very legitimate. I don't think that it's unfair at all to say LSU should be very concerned about this. I don't know if worried or scared is the right terminology, but yeah, I mean, what are we doing right here? We are replacing a quarterback. We are not replacing a coordinator, but we are replacing think regardless of terminology, a very integral facet of that offensive machine last year in Joe Brady. We're replacing a defensive coordinator. We're bringing a guy in who got it done a generation ago. What will his results be in an SEC where instead of a John Parker Wilson, you have a Bryce Young or Tua Tonga-Vailoa who's moved on now, but you get, you get my idea. You know, what Auburn was doing when Bo Pelini was there was Brandon Cox. And now you've got Bo Nix and you got to hurry up, no huddle. And so, so I don't doubt that Bo Pelini has the defensive chops. I'm just saying it adds a little, a little pillar of sand, another little pillar of unknown or a grain of sand. And that's not a pillar of sand, pillar of salt. That's what I'm looking for. Old Testament reference there. And so, yeah, you got that. You have the usual expectations and, worry about potential complacency setting in. I know no LSU fan believes that'll happen. And listen, I don't think it'll be a huge deal for him. But if we're speaking generically, anytime someone wins a national championship, they'll tell you five, 10 years later, 
Boy, that next year, it got so much harder. Consequences of success, remember. So yeah, on top of all that, now you take a spring away where you were going to have two new installs or one new install defensively and a new quarterback to install with offensively. Yeah, it's a big concern. I don't think that anyone would argue it's not. Ryan, via email, your personal favorite uniforms. I'm boring, Ryan. I am boring, boring, boring. I like Notre Dame's uniforms. I like Texas. I like uh, Oklahoma when they go with the vintage. Bama, I love. Penn State, I love. Those are the kind of uniforms I like. So, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm in my 30s. I'm the antithesis of what a normal 34-year-old male would like in a uniform. Dez on YouTube. What, if any, impact will there be as a result of Brian McClendon leaving the Gamecocks staff? Um, I don't know, Des. I think that there is a consensus in Carolina circles that the coaching changes they made will equal a net upgrade. Now, does that mean at specific positions that we may not see uh, maybe some regression? I don't know. I, I also think, you know, Brian McClendon, I I wasn't crazy about the results last year, but at the same time, here's what we can't know. And with Mike Bobo coming in as offensive coordinator, here's what we can't know. How much authority was truly delegated? In other words, how much of what really is Brian McClendon, if he were to have 100% autonomy, how much of that is what we saw? How much of Mike Bobo is what would be Mike Bobo if he were given 100% autonomy? I know everybody's saying the right things. From what I can tell, they said the right things last year. You remember? Remember how confident people, maybe even including myself, were in the offseason? And then the season happened. And of course, we've got injuries. And so injuries derail you to the point where none of this matters. We don't even know. And it seems like several years in a row, that's what's been the case with the Gamecocks. I'm more excited, to be honest with you, with the changes they made to strength and conditioning. Because all these coaching questions and personnel questions are irrelevant. If you tell me half their starters are going to be on the bench by week three and week four with broken this and strained that. Robert on YouTube, does Kirby Smart need to win a national championship soon, next one to two years, in order to keep the support of fans and the program and to continue to sell a championship vision to recruits? I believe in what he's doing at Georgia, but momentum and buy-in are fickle. I'm afraid he could follow a path similar to Mark Richt where recruiting and administration buy-in slowly fade. Robert, I know this is a very aggressive line of questioning. I don't mind it. Now, I'm not going to tell you he needs to win a national championship in the next one to two years. I, I think that that's, I'm not calling you absurd. I think that timeline is absurd at any one point in college football for any program. Now, obviously, someone's going to win one over the next one to three years. Could it be Georgia? Yeah, it could. They could win all three of them over the next three years. But to put that lofty and expectation level, eh, it is high. I've said this about Georgia, though, and I'm going to say it again now. I don't have a problem with your high expectations. And the reason I don't have a problem, whereas I did have a problem when Mark Rick was there, is when Rick was there, people had what I call Bama expectations on Saturday. Sunday through Friday, they weren't giving him Bama resources. He was getting a no to a lot of questions Nick Saban gets yes on. Well, Kirby Smart's getting all those yeses. And you know what that means? That means you guys have bought in. That means you guys are doing your job from the standpoint of filling that stadium for G-Day, for regular season games, making it a recruiting experience and a spectacle. You guys go on the road sometimes and take over stadiums. I mean, I was on the field at Notre Dame a couple of years ago when you guys rolled in there like 30 or 40,000 strong and several more outside the stadium. So you've done that. You guys have donated. Well, the likes of which Georgia has never seen. 
And so everything at Georgia is getting checked with a big green check mark. Everything Kirby Smart's asked for. If you get everything you ask for, there's no doubt that he's telling you, I need this in order to do that. Well, if you've given him the this, I don't have any problem with you expecting that. So the answer here is probably, I mean, if we're being realistic, yeah, he probably does need to win one over the next couple of years or else I'm not saying fire him. I'm not saying that, you know, it'll just be the end of times in Athens, but I do believe that there will creep in maybe a little bit of apathy. That sounds crazy. I know, but I don't think it's, I don't find it crazy. I think it's a a suggestion that has maybe a little bit more merit than anyone wants to admit behind it. How about Luke on YouTube? How much money would colleges lose without a college football season? I realize this would pretty much never happen, but just hypothetically, Luke, it's a, it's a doomsday question. Uh, The answer is, I don't know a, a numeric answer. I know it would be beyond catastrophic. There is no contingency for college football, for losing a football season. And I talked to someone a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, about a major university. We'll leave it at that. I don't want to tell you who it was, but it was a high up at a major university. This is, this is a university that you think prints money. Okay, so picture whoever that is in your head. There's like, there's only a few of them that you would qualify as this, but this was one of them. And this person said, when I asked basically the question that you just asked, Luke, I said, what happens when you lose the football season? He says, we can't. I said, no, no, no. I mean, like, I know you don't want to. What happens if you do, though? And he reiterated with a dead serious tone and face, no, we can't. We cannot lose one. Financially, we don't have that in the plan. It would scrap every other program we have. We don't have enough reserve funding, even in our emergency reserve fund, to sustain that kind of hit. We could lose some home games. We could lose non-conference games. We could do that. But if we lose the season, it's a disaster. So if that's one of the very top rung of the ladder programs, you just sit back for a second and ask yourself, okay, well, what does Middle Tennessee do? You know, what does um, Missouri do? And when Missouri, I mean, we're talking about Missouri, we're talking about Arizona State, Oregon State, Cal, you're talking about programs there that are not FCS. They're not bottom of the barrel G5. They're not lower rung anything. These are major power five programs. And if we're talking about the top rung types that are telling us plain as day behind the scenes, we cannot lose a football season. Then you can imagine what a, well, like I said, a doomsday scenario that it is for the sport of college football. That's why even a month or two ago, when this stuff was first starting, you already had officials and anonymous sources and whatnot, and I was hearing them too, off the record, they were already presenting, okay, well, maybe we can start in October. Well, maybe we can even roll it into 2021. You think, whoa, 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 we're still several months away from even having to make a decision. But what that line of thinking told you, if they were willing to state that in the open, what it meant is they're already thinking about disaster scenario. They're already asking themselves, you know, what's the safety net here? Well, there isn't one. So then what do we have to do? Whatever we have to do to get a game and get a season on the field, we're going to do it. And that should have told you everything because normally if there was a safety net protocol in place, that would be a very last resort sort of thing that they wouldn't even start considering until July. Start in October, start in January. No, they were talking about that a month ago. All right, we got it done in 30 minutes. So here's what we're going to do. 
what we're going to do is this every week you're listening on Wednesday or maybe later, but I record this on Tuesday. So here's what I started last week on Sunday night and on Thursday night, we do late kick live. That's eight Eastern seven central. That's live on the 24 seven sports YouTube channel. If you haven't already subscribe there, what I do is I pin a comment. I think it says something like, thanks for watching. Be sure to subscribe, click the bell for notifications. And this is where I want you to put your podcast questions. So if you look under those videos, when we do live shows, even if you're watching the replay, just scroll down, look in the comments. That's where you can put the questions for this podcast. Last week, I asked you guys humbly to give us a five-star rating and to leave a review. A lot of you did. Can't tell you how much we appreciate that. And I can't put into words how much that helps us out. We had really good traffic on this show last week, had really good traffic really across the board last week. So let's keep that up because the more traction you give us and the more you grease the wheels, the more content that I'm going to bring you. And I know good and well you want it as well as I do because there's really nothing else to talk about right now. So until next time, I'll see you guys on the YouTube live show Thursday night. That's Late Kick Live and Sunday night. And we'll be right back this time next week on the Wednesday edition of Late Kick Extra. Thanks for listening, guys. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets.